What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, August 12th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, what is going on? Matty, not too much, my dude. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout out because today is National Middle Child Day. So I know they say like birth order doesn't really matter, but I think it does. Uh, I'm a middle child and I crave attention. You know, I'm always on this show. I'm like, please give me attention. So just shout outs to all the middle children out there. And shout out, shout out to Middle Child by J. Cole. That's a, that's a track and a half. Oh, that's a great song. Yeah. Good cut. Good cut. (laughs) In some environmental news for you, the Inflation Reduction Act, which we covered on last Friday's show has officially passed in the Senate this week. And that's going to help the U.S. get to 40% emission reductions by 2030. So some great news, including the bill covering about 30% of rooftop solar costs for most homeowners. And that's going to be paid for by making corporations pay their fair share in taxes. So right on. Not a perfect bill, but this is a hell of a start. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm feeling good about it. And with that, let's get right into the show. climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way on Monday and Friday, of which today is one of those Fridays. <laughs> All right, time for our quick hits. And the first one is by Jenny Stiletovich and others from NPR. And they write, these hurricane flood maps reveal the climate futures for Miami, New York City, and D.C. So let's uh, address this one quick. This is an audio podcast. If you want to go check out these visuals, the best place to do that is to look at the first article linked in your show notes. If you've never noticed this, uh, number one, how, but number two, (laughs) we link every single article that we talk about so you can read it and uh, form your conclusions if you'd like. But in this case, go check out those maps. The models show that powerful flooding from storm surge is one of the most worrisome impacts of climate change and sea level rise. So NPR's analysis found that sea level rise in these three cities alone could expose roughly 720,000 more people to flooding in the coming decades. The article says that in all three regions, flooding from storm surge that once lingered along the coast will travel miles farther inland and grow deeper. By 2080, when sea rise could reach more than three feet, flooding would engulf even more critical infrastructure, including hospitals and schools that often provide shelter. So the first model discussed is in Miami, where analysis showed that if another hurricane similar to Hurricane Irma were to hit Miami directly today, it would threaten roughly 247,000 people with storm surge. By 2080, this number is projected to jump to 463,000 people. Wow. And part of this issue comes from construction in Dade County, where tomato fields and marshes that could serve as a storm surge buffer have been replaced with developments. Moving on to New York, a storm similar to 2012 Superstorm Sandy could impact 207,000 people if it were to hit today. 
By 2080, another Sandy would threaten 468,000 people. Sandy impacted low-income New Yorkers at a higher rate as 35 public housing developments and 24,000 apartments were directly in the path of storm surge. According to the authors, future storms coupled with sea level rise from climate change will flood even more low-income New Yorkers' apartments, exacerbating an ongoing affordable housing crisis. In Brooklyn, many upscale neighborhoods are at risk as well. If more is not done to deal with the future floods in areas like Williamsburg and Greenpoint. In those neighborhoods alone, the city estimates that 40,000 people have moved in over the past decade. And over the next 30 years, tide and storm surges will bring damaging floods here at a frequency that will be more than 10 times as often as it does today, according to other data from NOAA which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. In Washington, D.C., as the Potomac and Anacostia rivers rise because of climate change, more areas will be impacted by storm surge flooding. In 2080, with sea level three feet higher or more, waterfront parks would absorb the brunt of flooding from storm surges, leaving most homes and businesses dry. Yeah, so D.C. would only expect about 600 people to be threatened if a storm similar to 2003's Hurricane Isabel struck D.C. again. And in 2080, this number would jump to 2,100 people. D.C. benefits by having parks and green space absorb most of the flooding from storm surge under these models. And D.C. developers are actually increasing attempts to build in those areas that would absorb storm surge because living by the river is a desirable spot for people. So in this case, it's kind of going to come down to what makes more sense in terms of investment. Are we going to invest now and build a bunch of houses, you know, create some more hopefully affordable spots for people. But if they're waterfront properties, probably luxury high rises um, and make a bunch of money off it and then have to pay way, way more to address the impacts of flooding or. Do we invest in keeping this green, maybe additional plantings to make it absorb more storm surge? And then you're saving a lot of money in the long run. So we're going to have to see what D.C. decides on there. But those are kind of your two options. Yeah, I mean, population definitely plays a big part here. I mean, like D.C. only having 2,100 people in 2080 threatened by storm surge. That's not that bad compared to, you know, NYC or, or Miami. So we're going to have to ramp up our efforts in those cities that have, you know, more people. Yeah. And and by using D.C. as an example, you know, they are benefiting by that green space on the rivers and, you know, maybe increasing marsh plantings in Miami or or creating another additional buffer. I know we talked a couple weeks ago about mussels in New York City Harbor, but there are ways to mitigate storm surge that can really not only just benefit the local environment, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the case of Miami and, and uh, New York City, and even just you know a couple thousand in the case of D.C., like every person here is worth protecting. So those aren't crazy decisions you have to make. You know, Keeping green space green in D.C., installing more uh, infrastructure around the harbors of New York, and protecting the marshes of Miami, like those are things that they don't really cost as much. You're not going to make as much money off of them as you would if you developed them, but all of a sudden you're saving tons of money and more importantly, keeping far fewer lives in jeopardy 60 years from now. Yeah, and that's what matters the most, right, is keeping people safe. All right, let's move on to the next one, and it is titled, Due to Climate Change, Nevada Says Goodbye to Grass by John DeMelio of CBS News. 
A new Nevada law bans, quote, non-functional grass due to the mega drought in the state. Outdoor water use in southern Nevada is primarily used for landscaping, and within that landscaping, grass is the main use for the already scarce water in the area. The city of Las Vegas has already pulled up about 4 million square feet of grass on public property so far this year because green parkways are something that they just can't afford to use water on anymore. The city has employed water waste investigators to take notes on who is watering their lawn, when they're doing it, and how much water is used that ends up in stormwater drains. One of the main water sources for Nevada, Lake Mead, is drying up faster than ever, with levels dropping roughly 170 feet since January of 2000. Some people in southern Nevada have started devising a plan to keep pumping water out of Lake Mead until that very last drop is gone, which is why Water Authority Chief John Ensminger said that it was basically time to start protecting the community more and limit water use. And in this case, that means Las Vegas and other areas in Nevada. No more grass. I'm here for it. We're anti-lawn. <laughs> we are, but my thought process here is like weird because I remember when we watched Kiss the Ground and how they talked about the importance of soil and all that stuff and like and having greenery and mm -hmm. when you're ripping that grass up, aren't you like increasing the chance for basically another like dust bowl? Uh, not if you are replacing it correctly, which is what they kind of hinted at in this article. I don't think they said it explicitly, but here like, yeah, you're going to rip up grass. But the reason they put the emphasis on non-functional grass is because you know what's going to grow in its place something that grows great in Nevada. We're talking cacti, people. We're talking succulents. We're ah, talking all those native nice. plants that are supposed to be growing in this landscape. So, you know, you take out the stuff that grows really well in, I don't know, Kentucky. Or you're taking out your Kentucky bluegrass that shouldn't be there. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a Nevada that looks a lot more like Nevada. Yeah, exactly. Taking out the stuff that does not really belong and bringing back the localized fauna and flora yeah flora in this case because flora. Yeah. <laughs> flora not fauna flora well no maybe maybe fauna too because you got to think like you're you're bringing back the local plants exactly. so you're bringing back the local habitat so all of a sudden those animals that are supposed to be the birds the butterflies the bees like they'll all start showing up in numbers i appreciate you spin zoning that for me but i was right the first time <laughs> i was I didn't mean to be right, but I was. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we uh, we fall and just kind of stumble into the correct answer here on the planet today. I love it. Yeah, I'm excited to see how this plays out because, y you know, in an area where water is extremely, extremely scarce and people also need water to drink, it is extremely wasteful to say, yeah, I know that people downstream need to put water on their table and, you know, keep their kids safe and healthy but i really want my lawn to look good so you know what in this case like this makes total sense to me if you're if you're that type of person that's like really focused on your lawn like d do your thing but not at the cost of other families and in this case where water is scarce like this comes at the cost of other families so yeah let's em embrace tradition let's bring the cacti back and have really cool front lawns if you're in nevada nice hashtag embrace the cacti love it <laughs> All right, after the break, we are going to have a couple more quick hits for you. Stay tuned.
Planet today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Germany's conservative leaders push for nuclear power to stay on as the country breaks from Russian fuels by Erica Solomon of The New York Times. Germany's leading conservative politicians visited one of the last remaining nuclear plants in the country last week as a gesture to get the government to cancel its plans to abandon nuclear. With an energy crisis becoming more and more possible due to much of Germany's natural gas coming from Russia, some parties in Germany's government want the country to keep its last three nuclear plants online. After the Fukushima nuclear meltdown in Japan in 2011, German Chancellor Angela Merkel moved to wind down nuclear power. Olaf Scholz, her successor, suggested he may be willing to reverse this decision. Schultz added that it could make sense, given the current situation, to keep them running past their current decommissioning date of December 31st, 2022. The article says, quote, Germans are among the wariest in Europe of nuclear energy. In a sign of how contentious the issue of nuclear power is in the country, leaders from his own party and coalition partners almost immediately countered his remarks. Mr. Schultz then stressed that keeping the three nuclear plants open was mostly to meet regional needs in Bavaria, which is where many of the companies that drive German industry are located. So this one's really interesting to me, and, and I know we've gotten uh, we've gotten some pushback on this on TikTok in the past, but <laughs> like the whole nuclear debate and how certain countries kind of gravitate towards one side of it. So in Germany they use the term wary, but a lot of parties are very, very anti-nuclear, so much so that the country, like we said, decided to close down their remaining nuclear plants after seeing Japan's Fukushima disaster. Right. France is like the total opposite, where they're very, very pro-nuclear. And I think that in in this case, regardless of how you feel about nuclear, like this makes total sense because these plants are already running. It's not like we're creating new ones. And it's either we ramp up coal because they're not going to get as much natural gas from Russia. So all of a sudden you're going to go from natural gas, which is cleaner than coal, but not good to something way, way worse. Or you continue to get carbon free nuclear power from something that's already been running and already producing it all while you're starting to even further ramp up solar and wind in a country that already is pretty well regarded for its wind power. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you here. I think you have to continue with with nuclear, and I know that like kind of goes against what we have said before on this podcast. But it's Germany's like already on the up and up in terms of cons- in, in terms of um, renewable energy, so I'm not too worried about that. And also, like like you said, they're already up and running. It's not like we're putting you know brick by brick down in order to get these like new nuclear power plants up and running. This is just 
an alternative to coal. So in this case, it's it's completely viable. Yeah, and, and nuclear for me, you know, I, I didn't think that this was going to be as controversial as it turned out to be from a lot of people online, but I don't think nuclear is green, but I do think it's clean. And by that, I mean, I don't think it's, you know, as good as solar or wind because, yeah, you, you have this radioactive waste that you're storing either in the ground or, or elsewhere. Like, yeah, there's, there's a trade-off from that that nuclear has that solar doesn't. You know, if, if a solar plant breaks down, it's just not going to be producing solar. If, if a nuclear plant breaks down, you can have potential for a fallout. And that is so, so rare to the point where at this point, all these newer plants, it's almost a non-issue. Fukushima was because it was put on a fault line, which is bad planning. You know, you have Chernobyl that wasn't built very well. And that's why that broke down. But for the most part, like nuclear is very safe. It just does have that trade off of nuclear waste. So. I do think it's clean. I do think it's something that should be a really important part of our energy pie until 100% solar and 100% wind is more viable. Yeah. But right now it's not. And that's that's the fact of it is right now, if you want to power an entire country with just renewable energy, you're not going to be able to do that unless you're somewhere like Iceland where they have a ton of hydroelectric power and a ton of geothermal power, but most countries can't do 100% renewable. So to me, nuclear is way better than coal and natural gas. So in this case, I hope they keep them running. Like those are three major sources of power that they can keep open while they decarbonize further. Yeah. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is by Catherine Murphy of The Guardian, who writes, after more than a decade of darkness in Australia's parliament, Today was a good day for the climate. A new bill in Australia has passed providing hope for Australian environmentalists after decades of disappointment from their federal government. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese described the bill by saying, quote, this is as important a piece of legislation that will come before this parliament. He added, we have a great responsibility to this beautiful island continent that we live in to make sure we act on climate change. This government will. We can tell our children that we stepped up, we took responsibility, and we met the moment. Chills. Climate science shows that the Labor Party's 43% cut in emissions by 2030 isn't ambitious enough for Australia, while the country continues to contribute to global warming through fossil fuel use. The author writes, We can acknowledge these facts and still be entirely clear that passing this legislation matters especially because any action to address climate change in Australia has been tough to gain traction on. Yeah, so this isn't really what we can look at as a complete climate policy, but what it does do is provide a roadmap to say that in Australia, the government believes that climate change must be acted on. And the article points out a few things that can be worked on now that climate change is part of the national policy. So the government's going to have to retool the safeguards mechanism in Australia's government, which would help reduce industrial pollution and let us know whether Australia as a country is officially on the right side of the climate fight. The author writes, Australia also needs a strategy to reduce transport emissions. Cutting the price of electric vehicles isn't a strategy. It's an overture to a strategy. The Green Party is also pursuing a strengthening of environmental regulations to ensure that climate risks are assessed before new developments are given regulatory approval. So basically, they don't want to add in more checks to make sure new developments don't screw them over later on. Yeah, and the reason that we included one of the quotes from the author where they write, 
we can acknowledge these facts and still be entirely clear that passing this legislation matters. You know, this is not a perfect bill for Australia. This is good. This is a really good start. And Anthony Albanese has proven that he's willing to work on climate change in a country that was not willing to, to do that for a long, long time. This is great. And we covered him when he got elected. And, and you know, to see him maintaining those campaign promises thus far is really encouraging. But it's very similar to how I feel about, you know, the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act here in the States, where Joe Manchin did get a couple things that the fossil fuel industry is going to be happy about. You know, there's the the pipeline in West Virginia that he got. And there's some other provisions. Um, I haven't read the full bill yet, but it's basically something along the lines of uh, federal land and federal water has to be assessed for how much fossil fuels can come out of it before anything else happens. So Mm. it's not a guarantee that they'll get drilled. It's just a guarantee that they'll get looked at. And where some very progressive environmentalists would say that shouldn't even be in there. You're right. I agree with you. That's a really bad part of this bill, but it got us so much more in terms of climate change mitigation and energy policy that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So if Australia's bill is anything like ours and it took a little bit of compromise and it took, you know, a couple people in government to have their selfish wishes addressed in order to make the country as a whole and the world for that matter way better off because of these bills passing then look we're gonna have to deal with that you know i'm not thrilled about the pipeline i am ecstatic about the rest of this bill Mm -hmm. and i think it's a great start is it the solution no is this the solution in australia no but you can't get those solutions without these two massive building blocks that just got passed here and down under. Yeah, totally. And Australia is a very, uh, you know, we we just did a uh, Monday episode about this, but like the climate denialism of, or the climate deniers of every country and like Australia was one of the highest. Mm-hmm. So to even have Albanese in the position that he's in as prime minister is a great start for them. And, and also these words have to feel pretty good for if you're living in Australia and you you want your country to take action on what will be the biggest issue in our lifetime. Yeah. And it's funny you, you bring up, you know, the climate denial issue because you're right. Australia had, I think the second highest of any industrialized nation, um, second highest rate of people who don't believe climate change is a a big deal. Yeah. The U S was obviously number one and we had something like double the amount of people denying it here. And even with that, it's, it was only like, 18% of people. Yeah. It was something shocking where, you know, we're talking about these countries that are massively ranked as the highest climate deniers. And even those people, like you get them in a room with 20 people, there's going to be like one person that agrees with them. So it's not like, (laughs) it's not like we're still fighting this fight that we were 25 years ago where, you know, science was saying one thing and people were very split. Like this is, pretty much globally accepted as happening, which is great if you're an environmentalist who wants to see real meaningful change in government, Um, but also very frustrating still that we have however many people saying like, yeah, those people who are struggling with sea level rise in small island nations, sorry, that's just mother nature, baby. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's, we screwed this up we have a golden opportunity to fix it. And I'm feeling good about these two bills passing and getting us closer to that. Hell yeah. 
All right, that uplifting moment right there will do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we are going to be back for some bonus quick hits. So we're playing a little catch up from Matt's vacation. So we have some more stories to cover for you on the next episode. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. You can send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of the music you hear throughout it. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me on soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.